It was freezing cold in Dallas when I made my getaway. I outran a cold front when I gave my truck the reins. Barreling down I 35 with one thought on my mind. Forget the race, find an open space, leave that. Hey there, thank you for tuning in and hanging out with me on the other side of Texas. I'm your host, Jay West, Texas Leeson. We're broadcasting from the Racer Car Wash Studios. Racer Car Wash voted Lubbock's best wash around for five years running. Stop into one of five convenient locations across the rural metropolis of Lubbock for the best wash around. You're here. Go to racerwash.com. Find the location that's closest to you. You're coming in to the Hub City. Go to the same website. Find what's best for you. Do what I do at racerwash.com. I want to tell you that today I'm glad you hear from Brandon Darby regularly and we talk about issues, but today we're going to get into some background, uh, backgrounds on how we became friends, however tumultuous that time was, to how Brandon Darby found his voice and started the platform that he has for those on the border. And it's very important that whenever you hear from Brandon Darby, you understand that whenever he talks about the border, he means the north side of the border and American interests and then the humanitarian crisis on the south side of the border. And I think as you listen to Brandon Darby, you'll understand why I have the affinity that I do for him. I respect him. He is one of my best friends and for good reason in the principles for which he stands. Uh, we're going to take a quick break because it's in a, a very long interview with Brandon Darby ahead. I want you to stick right where you are and I think that you'll gain a lot from it. Stick with us right here. Johnny other side drink, of Texas. Johnny ain't 21. Yeah, but he's 18 and he's pretty handy with a gun. A man who needs no introduction. You're familiar hearing from him on Fridays. My friend, a Texas legend. He is a Breitbart Texas editor, Brandon Darby. How are you doing, Brandon Darby? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on, Jay Leeson. You are always welcome here out at the uh, Darby Ponderosa right now. I'm out at the Darby Ponderosa, uh, working on my gardens and watching my cow eat things from my gardens and having a good time. Let's um, let's reset to how we became friends. People who listen to us often may not know this. Let's walk down memory lane, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, I just wanted some consent before I went forward. Um. I remember hearing you on local radio, and then I read up on you and thought, wow, this guy lives in Lubbock. I called our mutual friend, Scott Braddock, and said, uh, shoot me this guy's number. I want him to come on the show. And <clears throat> what I did from that point, uh, we were almost not friends because I looked you up. And I looked up This American Life, uh, the podcast, the very popular podcast, did a piece on you, which I think we both disagree with now, but at the time, that's what I took up and I listened to and, and looked at their references and this, that, and other. You came on the show, and then I came at you with This American Life, and you didn't appreciate that initial set down. Uh, well, I wouldn't say I didn't appreciate it. I'm used to it. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think, you know, for the listeners to understand that, you know, when I was younger, I was a very prominent left of center activist, very radical about helping others. I wasn't really a political activist, but I 
I was really radical about helping others. And um, in the aftermath of Katrina, I uh, went to try to rescue some friends who were very prominent political activists. And uh, that turned into a major relief organization, kind of in spite of myself. Uh, and, you know, I became very prominent over time. I started to realize that I had a lot in common with a lot of left-of-center activists and that I was very radical about helping people. But I began to realize that politically and policy-wise, I really didn't agree with them on a whole lot. And that kind of pushed me away. Well, you know, long story short, some of the people I had gotten involved with with humanitarian relief work and on that large of a scale uh, were people who were involved with you know, Palestinians and all these other groups around the world, and not a surprise to many people, but it was a surprise to me as a lot of them are not, a lot of them, you know, have, have been at this point convicted of funneling money to terror organizations, and I played a part in, in alerting U.S. authorities that that was going on. So long story short, I spent a couple years working undercover with the FBI, and when other left-of-center activists and their allies and media found out about it, they trashed me and attacked me, and I had no mechanism to defend myself um, until much later when Andrew Breitbart heard my story and saw what they were doing to me, and he said, hey, I'm starting this website, and you can fight back from my website. You can tell your side of the story, and they can't edit your words. And I did, and that's how I met Andrew. That's how I came to Breitbart. Um, but yes, when people go back and go to that period of time where I was getting attacked in media and they try to challenge me on that stuff when much of it, I mean, is obviously what it is, right? Um, when they try to challenge me on it, it does sometimes irk me a little bit, you know, that I have to go through the whole story again and again and again. And, and you know, it's one of those kind of deals where, you know, most law and order kind of people appreciate what I did and understand it. And most people who think cops are pigs um, or who attack cops incessantly tend to not think what I did was okay to work with law enforcement and put bad guys in jail. You know, so it's, uh, but moderate people in the middle see that stuff from the media and unless they investigate further, their first reaction is usually what yours was, which was, to be like, hey, who are you? You know, that kind of deal. Yeah, and to take up that narrative. And, you know, I remember how tense that was. And uh, luckily, we got over it, and and now we can be pretty jovial and enjoy life with one another. But, Brandon Darby, this is... Uh, well, I'll tell you something, though. You know, something interesting happened. Uh, you know, HBO and some Soros money through Sundance and they made a movie attacking me, a documentary that did very well, but it was dishonest as all hell. So this other leftist person decided that uh, they would do it from Stanford, who does run Stanford's um, film school, decided they wanted to do a documentary but actually tell both sides of the story. And I participated in that documentary. Um, <clears throat> but what was interesting about it was when that documentary was coming out and being released, that was the first time that, that major news outlets or left-of-center news outlets allowed me to come on and defend myself. And I had all of these uh, appointments set up, interviews with major news outlets, and they, um, <laughs> after the first appointment, all of them canceled on me because I was articulate, I was nice, I was just who I'm being right now, and I just shot their arguments to total hell. And they decided not to have me on after that. <laughs> and they just quit talking about me after that. They quit, they quit attacking me because they knew I could defend myself. And they knew that the arguments didn't stand up. But it was just funny because it was the, the first time I got to defend myself live where no one could edit my words uh, was the last time they had me on, you know. So, so I, I, I've grown accustomed to, to having that argument. Like I'm very good at that argument. It just got kind of old, you know, and, and, and for the first few years working for Breitbart, I was the, the FBI guy, you know, the former leftist FBI guy who helped stop bomb plots. And 
And with uh, my coverage and my news coverage, now I'm largely not known for that. I'm known for my border coverage and my cartel work and my project in Mexico. Um, and so it's so, still so interesting, though, that even people who have known me for years don't realize that that's part of my history. And um, so it's just really interesting. You know, like, if you have such a colorful and interesting history, it, it's... Um, you know, it's always interesting people's reactions to it, right? Yeah, but Brandon Darby, you mentioned bomb plots. Talk us through that. I I could talk us through it, but I'd rather you do it. Um, you know, much like we're seeing now, the last time there was a Republican president, uh, the far left had decided that supporting George Bush meant you were a literal Nazi, and so they decided that you didn't have the right to speak or assemble, um, and they, they set out with a protest effort to actually shut down uh, people from being able to speak or assemble if they were Republicans. So at the 2008 Republican National Convention, it was in St. Paul, Minnesota, they set out with a specific stated goal to shut the RNC down by any means necessary, which is actually very threatening if you think about it. Um, but I want listeners to think about what that means. That means that they had decided that because Republicans were basically Nazis or literal Nazis, they didn't have the right to assemble. They didn't have the right to assemble and, and choose a candidate to, uh, to represent them in, in the, you know, in one of the two major political parties in the U.S., they decided that everyone there did not deserve to assemble and that they were going to use the threat of violence to stop it. And they tried to physically shut it down. They, they tried to stop the buses of delegates. They used violence and attacks to stop the buses of delegates uh, who, who pick and choose the, the Republican candidate for president. Uh, they did everything they could. And in the process of doing that, uh, some of them had made Molotov cocktails with a homemade napalm mix mixture that they intended, uh, their stated goal was to throw at Republican delegates and law enforcement officers protecting those delegates. Um, you know, I worked with the FBI. The FBI busted those guys. Uh, and those guys, you know, most of them said, yeah, we did it, sorry, and got two years in prison. And one of them decided to fight it and claimed that the FBI had uh, planted it on him. Um, my identity came out in the trial. The, the choice was either let the guy go and not receive a consequence, or my identity had to come out. So I chose to have my identity come out and to testify against him. And, you know, when he made that claim, all of most of the mainstream media outlets, not all of them, went with it and made a big deal out of it. The New York Times led the charge. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office released some information that showed it wasn't true. And then, you know, I went to bed that night and I thought, wow, I'm vindicated, you know. And now everybody knows the truth. And the next day the media just went with the next narrative he had, which was that we encouraged him to make the bombs, which wasn't true either. And so over time the U.S. Attorney's Office released a little bit more information that showed that wasn't true. And... I went to bed that night and thought, wow, I'm vindicated. Well, then the guy just changed his story again and said, I gave him the idea and trapped him and gave him the idea to make bombs, um, which also wasn't true. And the media went with that. And then at the very end of it, uh, they released all of the recorded phone calls that showed that him talking on the phone from jail, not realizing it was being recorded, talking about making up the story. And so once that happened... And, and then he pled guilty, and it, it was like, I obviously, I didn't even know about the bombs before he made them, right, when I was working undercover with the FBI. I went to bed, and I felt vindicated, and then they changed the narrative that the FBI's decision to use a guy who was a few years older than, than the people being investigated, who had such a high performance of hyper-masculinity, made it inevitable that young men in that person's presence, being me, um, would feel the need to prove their manhood. And so they, they changed the narrative to these guys, you know, yes, I didn't really entrap them or tell them to do it. Yes, they were lying, but they wouldn't have done it had I not been involved because my performance of hyper-masculinity made it inevitable. 
mm. that young men would want to prove their their manhood, and that's what they went with. And I got attacked and destroyed, and and uh, viciously attacked for that for quite some time until the trials were over. And once the trials were over, you know, it's something a lot of listeners might not know, but if if I'm a witness for the government in a in a terrorism case. You know, your defense attorney, if you're the person who got in trouble, your defense attorney can talk to the news all they want. And the movements of people who support you, right, free the Lubbock Three or whatever you want to call you and your friends, they can talk to the media all they want. But if I'm the witness for the government, I can't. So I can't defend myself. So for months until there's a trial, you get to say the worst possible things about me and the law enforcement officers I worked with, and I can't defend myself until the trial's over. And that's really what the situation was, you know. Um, and we're seeing that again. So, but that's what that's what happened. I'm a shoe shine man, a number one in the land. A shoe shine man, make you shine where you stand. Leave me a tip if you can. I'm a shoe shine man. While well, I can sing, I can dance, I can play the harmonica too. Hmm. Well, uh, we do have Brandon Darby here telling the story and all to go back to, I can't find it, Brandon Darby. I think it's three years ago or so where you and I got hooked up and luckily I came at you with that narrative and you were graceful enough to give me the excuse card and uh, we've come a ways away since that time. But I think it's good for listeners who hear you regularly who don't know the backstory uh to hear it directly from you so i appreciate you walking us through that um let me tell you something funny that happened on the show this week and i just want to get your reaction to it mike collier is running as a democrat for lieutenant governor and on wednesday uh he interacted with a well we got on the phone with one another and he responded to a Breitbart poll. Now it's not a Breitbart Texas poll. It was a Breitbart. Uh, how would you say it? A Breitbart. Um, uh, it was DC? a Gravis poll from a major Breitbart paid a major polling company to do polling in Texas. Yeah. Uh, Breitbart, the DC angle. Yeah. Big government. The, yeah. the, the DC Team. Yeah, and that's an important yeah. distinction. But they found that uh, Mike Collier was down two points against Dan Patrick. And look, the the politics aside, but to have to have major statewide candidates chime in on a Breitbart poll—that's quite a thing. Uh, I mean, I don't know. We usually have major national candidates. From presidential candidates, I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton devoted a third of a speech to attacking Breitbart, you know, uh, from the campaign trail. Um, uh, we're just kind of used to it, but but you know, the thing is, is Breitbart Texas is really, you know, we started off, we're very much Breitbart, we're very much political, we're very much fighting the left, and and over time we started to cover things that that just really transcend politics, you know, and, 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 and maybe, you know, you can find political angles in everything we cover, but like the border or cartels or the, the children who are left orphans because the cartels kill their uh, parents and in, in their effort to control the illegal immigration routes into the U.S., right? <laughs> you know, you can, you, there's obviously political ramifications to those stories and, uh, both sides could use it as political fodder or political ammo. But what we realized was that at Breitbart, Texas, was that there really wasn't anyone covering these things and not being political and not telling half the story. So we decided to, to you know, tell those parts that no one else was telling. Um, and we decided that, you know, as time went on, that we would, in fact, be less political and really just try to put information out there. Well, obviously, the rest of Breitbart doesn't abide by that. They're very political. They're a political news site. And, um, you know, that'd be like asking <clears throat> Braddock not to be political or the Texas Tribune not to be political because they're all very political. Um, and, yes, folks, the Texas Tribune is political. 
like regardless of what anyone says like like we could have that argument another time but every everyone is largely being political and and so i didn't want breitbart texas to be that anymore and so over time we've we've really shied away from being that um and the rest of breitbart being a political news site is obviously very political and, and it's just a distinction between us hmm. so so you aren't surprised that you'd have major statewide candidates chime in on the poll no they they have to chime in i mean we have like 45 million readers some months i mean they don't really have you know they, they kind of have to chime in because it's so many of the people voting uh read what we write you know yeah and so they kind of they kind of have to um if you really think about it you know hmm. brandon darby here with us and uh out at the ponderosa What's been on your mind there on the front porch? Uh, you know, I, I'm just kind of looking at at the border issues, and, and you know, I just I just really think that the the people in the middle and the people on the left who think they're helping migrants and they think they're helping these people by having an open border. They're not helping them. They're hurting them. And I've been trying to explain that for many years and, you know, story after story after story showing that. Uh, and it's just not, you know, I, I can't figure out why it doesn't permeate on that side. And I've kind of come to the sad realization that it doesn't permeate because politically they need it not to permeate, right? Um, there's no other excuse for it. You know, because there's no other excuse well, Brandon, let me just cut in. For me, I was really surprised, and I've been critical of the migrant child separation policy, and then the cluster it became that they backed off of it, and now it's like, well, we got to try to scramble and figure out where wh which kids go where. And good people can say, well, look, if you commit a crime in America, then you get separated. You know, maybe your kids go to in Texas. Uh, they go into respective departments, but on at the end of the day, I think it was really misguided, it was politically calculated, and they didn't think through it. Now, that said, it, I was really surprised to see the reactions of people that, yeah, they should be kept with their parents, and then essentially they should they should experience amnesty because they got here. Like it's not enough that we're going to try to control this flow. But then people wanted to go so far, and people on the left wanted to go so far as just to, well, now they're here, don't separate them and make them citizens. And that's just not the rule of law. Well, that it is not the rule of law, and that, that's the problem. Like, I, And I, I mean this, and I'm, I'm really trying not to be political here. I'm trying to, to just speak from, I mean, obviously I have a right-of-center perspective. I want more border security. Um, personally, I, I think there is a major humanitarian argument for border security, and I make that argument. Um, at the same time, you know, I will say this, that, you know, during the Bush years, the left protested and protested and said, you can't keep families detained together. That's not right. So what happened was Obama got stuck in a situation where he said, I either have to keep separate families or I can't prosecute anyone who shows up with a kid. So he just quit doing it. And I understand the position he was in. I get why he did that. But sadly, what that did was throughout the course of his presidency, the numbers of kids coming without parents and the numbers of people coming with kids, some of which were not their own, increased every year until we got to a place where it overwhelmed all of our facilities at the border in 2014 and after. Um, that's a result of saying that if you come with a kid or if your kid comes alone, then you get to, then you get to show up and stay in the U.S. And, and we'll pay for everything and you're okay, you get to stay. When, when you do that, that is what you get. And that's what happened. So Trump came in and he said, no, we're going to enforce the law. And yes, enforcing the law means that if we prosecute people who come between ports of entry, that means they get separated from their kids. So don't come with your kids anymore thinking that you get a free pass because like everyone else in this country, if we arrest you for violating the law, you will get separated from your kids. 
the left made it where we can't and we can't put you with your kids, not us. And that's what he did. Wasn't a child separation policy. It was a let's enforce our laws policy, and that's a, that is a consequence of it. Hmm. Um, the 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 very notion that it is a child separation policy is a left of center, mainstream media biased, politically motivated term. And it was never a child separation policy any more than saying we're going to bust all the drunk drivers now, even if they're with kids. That's not a child separation policy. That's, that's a we're going to have zero tolerance for drunk driving policy. Right? And if you make a rule that we're going to, you, can, you can't drive drunk unless you have a kid in the car and then we can't arrest you because we can't separate you, that's not... You can't do that because, obviously, what are the ramifications? Now you're risking children, encouraging people to risk children's lives in this journey. You know, most Americans don't realize, and this isn't just Breitbart reporting, it's also the Huffington Post, it's also Amnesty International, it's also the United Nations Office of Refugee Resettlement, I could go down the line, that the, the super majority of women who come, women, females, women and girls who come from Central America, are sexually assaulted along the way because they have to go through cartels to get here illegally. To cross our border between ports of entry means that you have to go through cartels and that you have to go through their networks. And so the system that we have already has the supermajority of women getting sexually assaulted and young girls getting sexually assaulted. That's all females. So in, anything that encourages more of it is, in fact, encouraging more of those rapes, is fueling more of those sexual assaults. Is fuel, the, the system we have at our border is not okay. So if left-of-center people and right-of-center people who, who are so upset about it really want to have an effect, what they would do is they would focus their energies on opening the ports of entry, the legitimate ports of entry, the bridges and the gates, and they would say, let's make more legal avenues for people to come. But instead, they're focusing their energy on protesting the cops, being ugly. Abolish ICE is what they're saying. That's the major Democrat party. The National Democrat Party talking point is abolish ICE. Look hmm. what these Border Patrol agents are doing. They're literal Nazis. You know, notice that they're attacking the individual law enforcement personnel. They're not attacking the lawmaker who made the law, they're the policymaker. They're attacking the cop on the street. That's what they're doing. And, and so that's where the problem comes in, is it's not something designed. If it, was, if it were designed to actually address the problem, it, they would be going about it differently. But the leadership has it designed to be a wedge issue going into the, two, the, the midterm elections. That's what's going on. And, and, and so it's, you know, seeing that is, is what I'm thinking about today. You ask what I'm thinking about. I'm trying to figure out how in the hell to deal with it when the people with the largest platforms are so screwed up. On one hand, you have Trump, and even though there's this amazing humanitarian argument to make for border security, he doesn't make it. He just like in, says things that fuel div divisions and insult people. And then on the other hand, you have the Democrats who act like there isn't a humanitarian catastrophe happening at our border as a result of their policies. I mean, this is such a mess that we're in, and both sides, the major people, the people with the largest platforms, just aren't doing this right. Okay, so Brandon Darby, here's my question. Let's say that you're elevated to the highest uh, platform, or that you, that Trump calls you tomorrow and says you are the new Secretary of Department of Homeland Security. What three things are you laying out to address a border? Well, the, the, the first thing, the major thing that has to happen at the border is that we have to change the way the State Department, the U.S. State Department, does business in Mexico. We have, they largely insist that, and I understand why, there's reasons for it, of trade and diplomacy, but they largely insist that, that U.S. law enforcement agencies balance their law enforcement priorities with cartels uh, and corruption in Mexico uh, with the State Department's diplomatic concerns. That is the single biggest obstacle to a secure border is, is, is our State Department's 
uh, overemphasis on diplomacy uh, with cartel-connected politicians. If, if you know, the bottom line is, is, is regardless of what we do on our border, it's not going to be secure until Mexico is okay. And, and, and to Central America is okay, but, but Mexico specifically, because if Central Americans coming through Mexico, uh, if Mexico were okay and it was safe, and they have so many resources with the, the international investment, the U.S. investment, the U.S. dollars that would be invested, invested they would have, without the, the, so much corruption, which is fueled by the drug war and by, by the uh, illegal immigration uh, that is fueling these cartels along our border, without that, uh, they would have a more stratified middle class, a more stratified economic development and economic growth, and people from Central America would stay there and work. They wouldn't come all the way through here to here, uh, and people in Mexico would want to stay in Mexico. Um, you know, so so that is the single biggest thing. In addition to that, we do have to increase border security, but we have to increase penalties for people who come in between ports of entry. Um, you cannot allow it to happen. You know, if, if good people, if, if the, you know, regardless of what you think, the number is one out of 100 are bad, 99 out of 100 are good, or is it 70 out of 100 are good and 30 out of 100 are bad, you, you, the, the good people coming in between ports of entry prevent us from effectively stopping the bad people. So you have to make a mechanism where the good people can come through ports of entry so we know that if anyone crosses in between, something's wrong, and we have to treat it like, like a... A, 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 a mad gunman is on the loose in a shopping mall. You know, you have to really react to that. So you have to handle that. And in addition to that, you have to increase, uh, you have to increase U.S. prosecutorial resources in the border regions to actually prosecute the crimes that are occurring there, where their systems are backlogged right now. And with those things, we would be on our way uh, to doing a lot of good. You know, you can add additional things like you know, change U.S. asylum law to where people have to request asylum uh, at a foreign consulate uh, in Mexico or, in, you know, we have them in border cities a lot. You know, they have to request asylum there and not, not, not where they can just cross our border at any point, even in between ports of entry. And when they're caught, they go, oh, I request asylum. I was looking for you. It's like, no, you weren't. You were sneaking across. No, no, I was looking for you. I request asylum. Now you can't arrest me. And since I have a kid with me, I get to stay, sucker. You can't, you can't have that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just untenable. It's not workable. So those are the major things that really need to happen. Yes, border security. Yes, physical barriers in areas where they're needed. Those things all matter whenever we're talking about, and it's not a racial issue. It's not like, well, why don't you feel that way about Canada? It's like, I'll tell you why. Because Canada has a parallel economy. It has a symbiotic economy where uh, it has a, a similar economy where the wealth is not in the hands of a few, but it is stratified and more spread out um, and uh, diversified into to more human beings. It has a larger middle class. With Mexico, we're talking about an economic disparity that we don't have with Canadians. Therefore, what that does is it, it encourages a black market and illicit behavior, which then when that black market is allowed, it fuels those groups who engage in illicit behavior, and they become very powerful. They start to buy politicians, and then you end up with the failed narco state that is Mexico south of our border. That's why not Canada. You know? So these are the kind of things we could do uh, that would really have an impact. But sadly, again, you have one side you know, you have Beto O'Rourke saying the border is safe, the border is safe, when clearly he's not telling the truth. And then you have Trump, on the other hand, saying, build the wall, and like, as though that is in itself the end-all, be-all, and is going to change anything, because it isn't, unless it happens with all of these other steps. You know, um, these are the kind of things, like, you know, the, the right-of-center people who believe in border security have a lot of good points, but left-of-center people do, too. You know, there's a, the reason El Paso doesn't like border walls or Laredo, Texas doesn't want a border wall isn't because they're open border liberals who want more Democratic voters. No, it's because their communities used to be sister communities, and they no longer can be that because that side of the community, that sister now has cancer and is dying of cancer, and it's ravaging her body, and the people of and, and the, the, the sister in the U.S. can't accept that yet. They're not willing to accept it. And that wall, that physical barrier, is the final acknowledgement that their sister has died. You know, there, there is a legitimate reason why they feel this way. 
and, and casting it off as though as much as I disagree with them, casting it off as though they don't have real concerns or that their concerns don't matter, it doesn't help actually resolve the issue. It just furthers the divisions. Hmm. Well, a couple more minutes here. Anything else on your mind, bud? No, I, I just got really passionate about that. I'm sorry. No, just, don't just, be sorry. I think I, I, you ought to be the I think about it all the time. Homeland I, I, Security. You know, I think about it all the time. You know, it's just, it's like both sides are doing things. I mean, it's kind of like the issue of racism uh, in the United States, right? You know, I look at people saying, you know, the, the right are racist, the right are racist. And it's like, well, I, I don't think so. You know, do I think there's some racists? Yeah. Do I think the majority of people that they're calling racists are racist? No. And what I think is that that we have a lot, in a lot of areas in our country, you know, predominantly white suburban communities have a lack of understanding of what's going on in predominantly black inner city communities. And people in those inner city communities have a lack of understanding of what's going on. And it's being portrayed as racism to score political points. Um, it's being portrayed as racism to score political points. They're not doing what somebody who wants to heal would be doing. Somebody who wants to heal and wants to solve a problem would be saying, hey, brother, sister, I know I called you racist. Well, I'm, I'm going to quit saying that because I don't think it's actually accurate. Um, I... I you know, I think that there's a lack of understanding. So let's do events and let's have organizations that try to get our communities together so you can understand what's going on in the black community and they can understand what's going on in your community. That's how you heal a nation and how you solve racism or what you're calling is racism. That's how you heal. That's how you build. But that's not what we see. What we see is people pointing the fingers at each other, saying, you're a racist, you're a racist, and they're doing that because they want the division to exist. They need the division to exist in primaries. They need the, the division to exist to rile up their voters and make them feel like the other side is less than human. And you see the right and the left doing this in different ways, you know? So, so I, I, you know, that's what's happening with the border issues and immigration. It's, it's both sides are saying things and doing things in ways that prevent discussion, you know? It really does. It sh they're conversation stoppers. And as long as we have those going on, we're not going to solve the problem. And, and you know who pays for it? Not only do U.S. workers pay for it, not only, you know, but, but, but you know who pays for it? Is all of those people in northern Mexico and from Central America, you know, 80% of whom, up to 80% of whom are getting sexually assaulted along the journey to get to our border. They're the ones paying for it. You know, the poorest of the poor, the least of these, the ones that no one else in this world seems to care about, those are the ones paying the price for the right and the left in the U.S. being unable to actually have a conversation. And it, I'm going to tell you what, I know that when it comes to some of the Democrats who listen to your show and some of the Republicans who listen to your show, I don't think they have bad intentions. I think they very sincerely uh, have their heartfelt beliefs, but the people at the top of these parties, the people making calls, they know what they're doing. They know that they're sowing discord. They know that they're rowling up people, causing further divisions to enhance their own political power and, 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 and advance their own agendas. They know what they're doing. And I'm not blaming the Democrats or the Republicans. I'm blaming both of them for it. Well, that's some good stuff. Um, Brandon Darby at Breitbart, Texas. Uh, Breitbart.com backslash Texas. Uh, any Makes closing you wonder, thoughts? brother, if I could, if I could, uh, if I could quit smoking, quit drinking Johnny Walker and, and get married or something and live a better life, I could have been a, a pastor, huh, a preacher or something, right? I get so passionate about these issues. You know. I, I think uh, what's funny is I actually, I actually, I end up speaking a lot from pulpits, and uh, people are usually really shocked because I get up there and I tell them, I just am really, I'm like, hey, I'm not trying to come up here and act like I'm sanctified in any way because I'm so not. 
And, you know, the second that I think you people can't see me, I'm going to light up a cigarette, you know, when I get out of here. Like, I'm not trying to act sanctified, but I am here to talk about, you know, a, a large group of people encompassing millions of human beings who are the least of these who no one else is caring about right now and no one's telling their story because it politically doesn't benefit them. And uh, I find that when I talk that way from a pulpit, people appreciate it. Uh, most people do. A couple people have, have uh, not invited me back, but most people appreciate the honesty. Uh, you know, so it's kind of interesting. Just yeah, talk. well, it's an ongoing conversation, and I think that in order to address it, we need to figure out, uh, this is just my own thoughts, but like any po- confounding policy issue, which can only have approximate solutions, we all have to be a little humble and start from a, a status of what we're doing is wrong and we're all fallible people. So let's try to work forward. And you do a great job of helping lead that conversation, Brandon Darby. And I appreciate your time, buddy. Hey, thank you for having me on. And, uh, I hope the listeners, uh, enjoy their, their, uh, their, uh, evening and their, and their days. Uh, and that they, you know, remember that, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, who are our neighbors and in our own communities who are left without a voice, you know. And and the only people trying to tell their story are people who show up, not the only, but a, a lot of yeah. the only people telling their stories are people who show up right before an election um, and, and mobilize voters. So, so we could probably do a better job as a whole of having conversations and actually doing something about the problems that we're, that we're dealing with on our side of the planet. You know, I said that we're going to cut it off, but I'm going to ask you one more question just to circle back from where we began. I wonder how much of you in that dark time when shunned by left and right, how much of that imbues your perspective today and your wanting to speak for people who are unable to speak, who people didn't come to and say, listen, here's a website and you defend yourself. I wonder how much Brandon Darby that plays into uh, your motivation in speaking for people who don't have access to platforms or a voice. I think it does. I, I think that my life has been a series of, you know, when I was a, a young teen, I ran away from home. I stayed gone for a good while. Had a lot of obviously really bad experiences that left me uh, really disliking bullies and really just, you know, disliking uh, people who take advantage of others. Um, uh, it left me pretty radical about doing something when people are abusing power. Uh, you know, I my life has been a series of those situations where I've I've experienced that. You know, I, most of those people that I run away with or that I had been in trouble with as a young teen, uh, you know, one of them is dead. And, I, you know, looking at his record, he got it. He had all kinds of problems with violence and law enforcement and was incarcerated and he got killed robbing an ar- during an armed robbery. Um, others are incarcerated currently, um, you know, but somehow I made it out of that without being that person. You know, um, I, you know, I dropped out of school and, and uh, I first dropped out in eighth grade. I think that was the last year that I actually finished was eighth grade and I got a GED as I got older. Um, you know, most people who went through that didn't end up in my situation in life, right? They, they, they're not in as good of a situation as I am. And it's interesting that you, you brought up Scott Braddock earlier. You know, we have our disagreements on policy and all kinds of stuff. But one of the things I really like about Scott is he also, you know, came from a, 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 a different background than most people in our industry. And he's, he's managed to, you know, he has a GED as well, but he's managed to become an editor. He's managed to become someone who, who has a voice and uses that voice for what he believes in. And that's a remarkable thing, you know, to me. And I, I relate to him in that. Um, but my life has been a series of those things. So, you know, so many times in so many situations in my life, I, I really look back and I was in such peril or I was in such danger or I was in such risk, whether it be law enforcement work or whether it be prior to that as someone who thought I was a revolutionary and went to foreign countries and did crazy things or whether it be what happened in Katrina 
or whether it be, you know, what happened as a runaway. Like, there's so many times that I, I really don't know that I should have made it. So many people didn't, but for some reason, I did. And I, I really think that, that that's a God thing. And, um, and so that the drives that I have on my heart, like, it, it's just, it, it, there's really nothing else that would make sense for me to be doing with my life, considering my life experiences, you know? It, it wouldn't make sense. Like, I would be so, I would be such an ungrateful, selfish person with the life experiences I've had to not do the things I do. You know, it, it just, it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense um, out of putting it all together and looking at it. Like, the only, when you add it all up, all you come up with is that somebody would do what I do, you know? So, let me ask you this. Because I think a lot of people wonder about this, Brandon Darby. What is it like for you to be disregarded in the work and the efforts you put forward, the voice that you come up with that oftentimes leaves people on both sides of the aisle wide-eyed? What's it like for you to speak up from that place and then to be dismissed, discounted because of the Breitbart affiliation? Uh, you know, I, I think it's sad that it, it's, it's really a form of bigotry, um, on the part of people who do that. Uh, and it's not, you know, everyone is almost, almost everyone is doing it right now. Like half the country says CNN is fake news. The other half says Breitbart is fake news. Right. And like, I don't read anything. And I, I think people do themselves a disservice by only reading what they agree with. And I think that they do the world a disservice. I think that they do those people in northern Mexico a disservice because if you want to know what's going on in their lives, we're the only platform that they're writing for. Like, like most of my staff members are people in northern Mexico who don't even speak English. In the Cartel you know, Chronicles, if people about, want to look it up, yeah, Cartel Chronicles. Right, so, so I, I think it's sad. I mean, sometimes I get frustrated, like... Sometimes I get frustrated uh, with mainstream outlets. You know, the Associated Press will take my work and, and basically try to act like I didn't do the work prior to them. I think that's really frustrating. Um, other outlets have done that. Uh, I find that frustrating. You know, the, uh, you know, I find it very frustrating, but I, I understand it. But I understand it's a form of bigotry. Like, oh, you know, Breitbart has 100 people in the company and those 20 people do stuff I don't like, so, so these, all these other people must be the same way. You know, it, it, it's akin to, you know, somebody with dark skin robbed me, so everyone with dark skin is a thief. You know, it, it, it's bigotry. It's a form of bigotry. And, and it's a form of big, bigotry that's very prominent in our society right now on both sides, and I really wish it weren't there, but... You know, I, I don't really care. See, Jay, I'm at a place where, like, I'm doing what I do. Uh, now I make a good living doing it. But for many years, I didn't. You know, for most of my adult life, I was lucky to pull in twenty-five or 30000 a year. Lucky, you know. And that was doing odd jobs around my advocacy. Now, uh, my advocacy of telling people stories, I, I get to do that and I get paid for it, right? Which is awesome. And it's like, it's like heaven to me. But, but, you know, I'm at a point where like, if, if this all fell apart tomorrow and I had to go work at Home Depot and take cabinet jobs on the side, I know how to do cabinetry. I know how to do concrete work. I come from a blue collar background and, and I do what I do because I should do what I do. But if I'm ever, if life ever says, Hey, you can't do what you do anymore. I'd be happy to go do something else. I really would, it, but I just can't make that decision myself, right? Because that would be the ungrateful, selfish part. Um, you know, when these people discount me, I know what I'm doing. I go to bed at night, and yes, I'm frustrated often when I go to bed. You've experienced that before when you've called me right before bed and tried to talk about something going on in the world, and I've gotten mad at you, and I'm like, damn it, Jay. I've been thinking about this all day, and I've I'm trying to not think about the damn border and these people's lives, and you just brought it up right when I'm in bed, and now I'm not going to be able to, you know, I get mad about it because I, I, I can't shut it out of my head because I feel like it's so urgent, right? What's going on is so urgent. Like, the, their suffering is so urgent. And, and um, 
you know, and I'm just now getting to a point where, where most major publications, editors follow me on Twitter. Most, a lot of journalists, especially national journalists, follow me on Twitter. And, and so I'm at this point where at least they're, they're hearing my perspective, you know, at least they're hearing what I'm saying, even if most of them won't. Uh, you know, Chris Hayes from MSNBC acknowledged it. I appreciated that. He was very complimentary. Uh, several people from Fox have, uh, you know, several people from, you know, Jake Tapper was very kind to me uh, and supportive uh, at one point. I appreciated that. That means a lot to me, right, that, 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 that I have their ears. And, and so, so things are changing in that direction, but I still think that <clears throat> the country is so divided that, um, that all some people can see is Breitbart. They can't go, hey, Brim's an individual who works at Breitbart. And if they knew the story of why I worked at Breitbart, they, it would make sense to them probably. But, but most people don't know the whole story. Most people don't know the background. Most people, you know, so, so I realize that. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, to me, it's just, it is what it is. It's a cross to bear. But it's the same cross that people from CNN have, and it's the same cross that people from any other outlet have, where they just have to, you know, half the country's mad at you no matter what you do. Uh, because they disagree with you, and and that's a harsh environment to operate in. I do find it a little stressful when when journalists say, you know, when journalists say, well, these are, you know, being so criticized and attacked and called fake news, it feels it feels so horrible. And it's like, hey, sister, like I hear you. You guys have been doing that to us for years. The only difference between what's happening now and what happened a year, two years ago is that now you're getting the same treatment you've given us for many years on the right, you know, in, at Breitbart. So basically, I, I recognize that everybody's being treated that way by somebody, you know. And mm -hmm. you just try to do your work and, you know, occasionally if you're waiting in line at a doctor's office or waiting for your Whopper and somebody says something stupid, you might treat them like a yarn ball and argue with them on Twitter or something. But, um, you know, it it doesn't really matter, you know, in the end. And in the end, like, and you probably can relate to this, no matter, even if the whole world hates me, if I know that I told the truth or I tried to, you know, my, my child still loves me and is still happy to see me. My gardens are still growing. My cow still moves and comes to me when I bring her sweet feet out at night. Like, my grass is still growing. Um, you know, my life is still, the things that really matter in my life to me are still moving right along regardless of people's politics and how they feel about me. Brandon Darby, lengthy conversation. Glad that you would make time to do it. Follow him at Brandon Darby on Twitter. Read all his stuff at Cartel Chronicles and Breitbart, Texas, there online. Thank you for the time, my friend. Thank you, Jay. Now, this time we really do have to go. I have barbecue ribs in the oven. Okay. You have to excuse me. The things that <laughs> matter with Brandon Darby. I uh, appreciate you, bud. Not ever gonna find us. Shipwreck on the mountain.